Chapter 9 of The Girl Who Had Nothing. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by May Rose. The Girl Who Had Nothing by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. Chapter 9 A Journalistic Mission. It is like stating that the world is round to say that London is the best of hiding places. It is the best because there are many Londons, and one London knows practically nothing about any of the other Londons. When, therefore, Mercy Milton disappeared from Northmore House, Belgrave Square, John Cathrew promptly appeared at her old camping ground, the boarding house in Woburn Place. Joan was no longer penniless, and as far as Lord Northmore was concerned, she was easy in her mind. A man of his stamp was unlikely to risk the much-prized honor of his name to seek her with detectives, while unassisted he would have to shrug his weary old shoulders and resign himself to loss and loneliness. But ambition kindled restlessness. She grudged, wasting a moment when her fortune had to be made, her permanent place in life fixed. Besides, she was dissatisfied with her adventure in the house of Lord Northmore. She had not come off badly, yet it galled her to remember that in self-defiance she had been driven to confess her scheme to its victim, and that, this expedient not proving efficacious, she had eventually been forced to run away like the coward she was not. On the whole, she had to admit that if Lord Northmore had not in the end got the better of her, he had come near to doing so. The sharp taste of failure was in her mouth, and the only way to be rid of it was to get the better of somebody else, somebody disagreeable, so that the sweetness of success might be unmixed with bitterness. Existence as Lord Northmore's adopted relative had been deadly dull, existence as his wife would have been worse, and the remembrance of boredom was too vivid still for Joan to regret what she had sacrificed. Nevertheless, she realized that it had been a sacrifice which she would not a little while ago have believed herself fool enough or wise enough to be capable of making. She wanted her reward, and that reward must mean new excitements, difficulties, and dangers. I should like to do something big on a great London paper, she said to herself on the first night of her return to Wilburn Place. What fun to undertake a thrilling journalistic mission and succeed better than any man! I wonder whether Mr. Mainbridge, who was a reporter on the planet, is here still. He wasn't at dinner, but then he used often to be away. I must ask in the morning. Joan went to sleep with this resolve in her mind, and before breakfast she had carried it out. Mr. Mainbridge was still one of Mrs. Witt's boarders, and had often inquired after Miss Cathrew. He had come in late last night and was now asleep, but would be down to luncheon, and there was no doubt that he would be delighted to see the object of his solitude. All turned out as Miss Witt prophesied, and Joan was even nicer to the reporter than she had been before. He invited her to dine that evening at an Italian restaurant, and she consented. When they had come to the suites, Mr. Mainbridge could control his pent-up feelings no longer, and was about to propose when Joan stopped him. "'We are too poor to indulge in the luxury of being in love,' said she, with a sweet frankness which took the string from the rebuff and dimly implied hope for the future. "'I shall not marry until I am earning as much money as—' 
as the man I love. I could not be happy unless I were independent. Oh, Mr. Mainbridge, if you do care to please me, prove it by introducing me to the editor of your paper. I want to ask him for work. The stricken young man felt his throat suddenly dry. In his first acquaintance with Joan, he had boasted of his influence with the powers that were upon the new and phenomenally successful daily, The Planet. As a matter of fact, the influence existed in Mainbridge's dreams, and there only. Sir Edmund Foster, the proprietor and editor, hardly knew him by sight, and probably would not recognize him out of Fleet Street. To ask such a favor as an introduction for a strange young girl, however attractive, was almost as much as the poor fellow's place was worth, but he could not bear to refuse Joan. "'Tell Sir Edmund that I have information, important to the paper, for his private ear,' added the girl, reading her admirer's mind as if it had been a book. "'But—but but if—er—you hadn't really anything which he—' stammered Mainbridge. "'Oh, I have!' I guarantee he shall be satisfied with me, and not angry with you. Only I must see him alone. Tell him I come from... Joan hesitated for an instant, but only for an instant. From the Earl of Northmoor. Mainbridge was impressed by the name and her air of self-confidence. Encouraged, he promised to use every effort to bring about the introduction, if possible, the very next day. If he succeeded, he would telegraph Joan the time of the appointment, which would certainly not be earlier than three in the afternoon, as Sir Edmund never appeared at the office until that hour. Then I won't stop for the telegram and give him a chance to change his mind before I can drive from Wilburn Place to Fleet Street, said Joan. I will be at the office at three in the afternoon, and wait until something is settled, if I have to wait till three in the morning. The next day, after luncheon, Joan chose her costume with extreme care as she invariably did when it was necessary to arm herself for conquest. Radiant in pale blue cloth, edged with sable, she presented herself at the offices of the planet. There is a waiting room at the end of a long corridor, and there she was bidden to sit. But instead of remaining behind a closed door, as soon as her guide was out of sight, she began walking up and down near the stairway, where Sir Edmund Foster must sooner or later pass. She had never seen the famous man, but she remembered his photograph in one of the illustrated papers. Presently, a tall, smooth-shaven, shallow man with eagle features and bags under his keen eyes came rapidly along the corridor, accompanied by a much younger, less impressive man, who might have been a secretary. Joan advanced, pretending to be absorbed in thought, then stood aside with a start of shy surprise and a look nicely calculated to express reverence of greatness. Sir Edmund Foster glanced at the apparition, and let his eyes linger for a few seconds as his companion rang the bell of the lift, close to the wide stone stairway. When he hears that there is a young woman waiting to see him, he will remember me, and the recollection may influence his decision, thought Joan, who did not undervalue her beauty as an asset. Perhaps it fell out as she hoped, things often did, for she had not read more than three or four back numbers of The Planet which lay on the waiting-room table, when Ralph Mainbridge, flushed and almost tremulous with excitement, came to say that Sir Edmund had consented to see her at once. Without seeming as much overpowered as he expected, the girl prepared to enter the presence of greatness, but she was not in reality as calm as she appeared. The thunderous whir of the printing-machines had almost bereft her of the capacity for thought, 
just at the moment when she wished to think clearly. Her nerves were twanging like the strings of a violin, which is out of tune, and it was an intense relief to be shot up in the alarmingly rapid lift to a quieter region. The rumbling roar was deadened on Sir Edmund's floor, and as the door of his private office closed on her, it was shut out altogether. Miss Carthew, from Lord Northmore, the famous editor-proprietor said, I believe you have some interesting information for me. He smiled with a certain dry benignity, for Joan was very pretty, and he was, after all, a man. I think I saw you downstairs. I saw you, Sir Edmund. Joan's manner was dignified now, rather than shy. I trust you will not be angry, but within the last two hours everything has changed for me. Lord Northmore, whom I know well through my cousin, Miss Mercy Milton, his ward, you may have heard of her, we are said to resemble each other, has now changed his mind about allowing the piece of information I meant for you to be published. He has forbidden his name to be used, but it was too late to stop that. I can only beg for my cousin, Miss Milton's sake, more than my own, that you will not let the fact come to his ears. If it should, she will suffer. You need not fear that, Sir Edmund reassured her. But if you have no information to give me, Miss, er, I had to come and explain why I hadn't, Joan cut in. I hope you won't blame poor Mr. Mainbridge for putting you to this trouble. It isn't his fault, and he doesn't even know. Who is Mr. Mainbridge? Oh, ah, uh, yes, of course. Pray, don't regard it as a trouble. Quite the contrary. But unfortunately, I... You would say that you are a very busy man, Joan threw into the editor's suggestive pause. I won't take up much more of your time, but as I want to say that, although I have nothing of value as I hope to tell, I shall have later, if you will consent to engage me and your staff. Sir Edmund laughed. He evidently considered Joan a spoiled darling of society with a new whim. My dear young lady, he exclaimed, in what capacity, pray? We do not devote space to fashions, even in a Saturday edition. Would you come to us as a reporter, like your friend Mr. Mainbridge? As a special reporter, amended Joan, I would undertake any mission of importance. There are none going begging on the planet, but, this soothingly by a way of sugaring a dismissal, you have only to get hold of something good and bring it to me. For instance, some nice, spicy little item as the truth of the rumored alliance between Russia and Japan. We would pay you quite well for that you know, provided you gave it to us, in time to publish ahead of any other paper. How much would you pay me? asked Joan, nettled at this chaffing tone of the famous man. Enough to buy a new frock, and perhaps a few hairpins. Say, a hundred pounds? That isn't enough, said Joan. I should want a thousand. Sir Edmund turned a sudden keen gaze upon the girl. Then his face relaxed. We might rise to that. At all events, I'm safe in promising it. It is a promise, then? Oh, certainly. Thank you. Let me see if I understand clearly. I'm not quite the baby you think, Sir Edmund. I read the papers, yours especially, and take, I trust, an intelligent interest in the political situation. Now, the latest rumor is that Russia is secretly planning an understanding with Japan and China. What you would like to know is whether there is a truth in this rumor, and what? in that event England would do. Exactly. That is what all the papers are dying to find out. 
if you could get the official news before any of them you would give the person who obtained it for you a thousand pounds if in addition they or one of them let us say the daily beacon got the wrong news on the same day you would no doubt add five hundred to the original thousand for revenge is sweet even to an editor i suppose and the beacon has i have heard contrived to be first in the field on one or two important occasions within the last few years this illusion was a print-pick in a sensitive place for joan was aware that the daily beacon and the planet were deadly rivals as well as political opponents mainbridge had told her the tale of the planet's humiliation by the enemy and she had not forgotten the beacon had been able at the very time when the planet was arguing against their probability to assert that certain political events would take place and in time these statements had been justified to the discomfiture of the planet sir edmund frowned slightly the daily beacon possesses exceptional advantages he sneered it is difficult for less favoured journals to compete with it for political information i believe i can guess what you refer to answered joan i hear things you know from my cousin miss milton this to shield mainbridge lord henry borrowdaily an under-secretary of state is a distant relative of mr portheus the proprietor of the daily beacon and it is said that there has been a curious leakage of diplomatic secrets once or twice by which the beacon profited you are a well-informed young lady i hope to earn your cheque as well as your compliment said joan perhaps you will write it before many days have passed it must be before many days if at all i understand that time passes if you are to be first in the field for the great secret can't be kept from the public for more than a week or ten days at most but look here sir edmund would you go that extra five hundred if on the day that your paper published the truth about the situation the beacon made a fool of itself by printing exactly the opposite yes said the editor i would well we shall see what we shall see returned joan she then took leave of sir edmund who was certainly not in a mood to blame mainbridge for an introduction under false pretenses even if he were far from sure that charming miss carthew could accomplish miracles as for joan her head was in a whirl she wanted to do this thing more than she had ever wanted anything in her life though it had not entered her head a few moments ago she would not despise fifteen hundred pounds but it was not of the money she was dreaming as she told her cabman to drive to battersea park and keep on driving till ordered to stop the strange girl could always collect and concentrate her thoughts while driving and this was her object now joan had never met lord henry borrowdaily but during her year at northmoor house she had known people who were friends or enemies of the young man and his wife she had her own reason for listening with interest to intimate talk about the character and private affairs of persons who were important figures in the world for at any time she might wish to use knowledge thus gained she did not believe from what she had heard that lord henry borrowdaily son of the marquis of wastwater was a man to betray state secrets for money he was bookish and literary and though he was not rich neither did he covet riches but he did adore his beautiful young wife and was said by those who knew him to be as wax in her hands she was popular as well as pretty was vain of being the leader of a very gay set and dressed as if her reputation depended upon being the best gowned woman in london because lady henry posed as an ingenue who scarcely knew politics from polo joan suspected her 
it is she who worms out secrets from her husband and sells them to portheus joan said to herself oh to be a fly on the wall in the borrow daily's house for the next week this wish was so vivid that like a lightning flash it seemed to illuminate the dim corners of the girl's brain she suddenly recalled another story of the inestimable main bridges told in connection with the rivalry of the daily beacon and the planet an eminent statesman's servants told the secret of his master's intended resignation she said to herself why shouldn't a servant at the borrow dailies she did not finish out the thought at the moment the vista it opened was too wide to be taken in at a glance but after driving for an hour round and round battersea park the patient cabman suddenly received an order to go quickly to clarkston's the wig-maker at the shop the hansom was discharged and it was a very different-looking fare which another cab picked up at the same door somewhat later end of chapter nine recording by may rose